Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's, uh, let's pray. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But Father, you showed your love to us in that yet, while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that amazing gift. We don't even know how amazing that gift is. We don't even understand the depth of our sin, nor do we understand the depth of your love for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that more and more. We pray that you would help us to see that today in the preaching of your word and in our being welcomed to the, to the Lord's table and in our time of worship and fellowship, Lord. We pray that we would see the reality of the gospel in a deeper way. And Lord, as we look at the uh, at marriage or design for marriage, I just pray for different groups of people that are here with us. We pray for our kids. Um, we pray for them, um, those of our children who will go on to be married and have families of their own. We pray, Lord, for their future spouses. Lord, we pray for their children. We pray, Lord, that it would be just a great legacy of the gospel that we would all hand down generation after generation. Um, we pray, Lord, for those who are... Um, single but don't want to be, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would give them the desire of their heart and, and bring them a, a godly spouse. Um, we pray, Lord, for those in our midst that have lost their marriages through divorce or through death or, Lord, we, you know all the circumstances and we know, Lord, the great pain that can be caused. And so we pray, Lord, even as we look at your design for marriage, I pray, Lord, that you would bless them, Lord, and that they would feel your love and the assurance of your grace and, Lord, your sovereignty, your sovereign care for them, that you're in control and you're there for them. You love them. You provide. And, Lord, I pray for all those who are here whose marriages are difficult, Lord. I pray that you would give grace, that you would, even as we hear about the gospel, that the gospel would so give grace to each one of us to to live with each other in a more understanding and loving and joyful way. We pray, Lord, for any repentance that we need to have in our marriages, Lord. As you show us areas where we're not living out the design you have for us, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be so discouraged and condemned, but that we would see it as an opportunity to reach out to you for change, that you would transform us. 
that you would make our marriages to be a better picture of your son's relationship with us, the church. We just thank you for these holy things you've given us. We pray, Lord, that we would speak of them well, receive them well, live them well, and we pray that we do all that in the power of your son through the spirit, not of our own efforts, but Christ living through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in our fourth week in a series called Generous Design, and uh, Aaron actually made us a logo for it, which I think will be up there in a little bit, but he made a, a cool, like, a really interesting, there's many layers to this thing, too. As I was looking, I was seeing new and new layers, different layers to it, but Aaron told the people who made that for us, but we're in a series called Generous Design. We're looking at God's generosity and designing us, male or female, and giving us work and friendship and marriage and sex and parenting, so we're going through all these things. This morning, we're going to look at marriage, and each week, we're going to have a book that kind of fits our series pretty well. The book this week, I've got five copies of Strange New World by Carl Truman. This is a great book. If you're having trouble understanding where you live, you feel a bit like you've been dropped in a foreign country in the last maybe 10 years or so. Anybody feel like that? Okay, perhaps. Seems like things have changed really drastically. He shows in this book, though, how this has been the fruit of long course of changes in culture and really helps us understand things. So if you're having a hard time understanding why in our culture it's actually become a very difficult question to answer things like, what is a woman? You know, we've gotten to a place where those kinds of questions seem hard for our culture to answer. This book is really helpful in explaining that. Truman shows how over a process of time, we've all come to give our psychologized selves, our our feelings and emotions, a weight of authority uh, above God's authority and his word, but also above even the authority of physical reality. You know, so that your body is clearly male or female, and then you would struggle with something internally that doesn't fit that, and, and give authority to the insides instead of the outsides. That's a whole process of, of change that's happened. It's a very, very helpful book. And what you'll find in it is that we've all been influenced by our culture. We're not, you know, immune to these forces. And so they're right down here. I'd love for you to grab one if you're ready to read it. And if some of you guys want to actually read that and we could do a quick discussion group on it. I would love to. I got mine all, you know, highlighted and marked up, and I would love to discuss these things because we need to be better equipped, not only to deal with our own souls, because we live in this culture and we're affected by the culture, but also equipped to minister. And what I like about his book, another thing, okay, I'm going to stop after this, but another thing I like about his book, he says in the beginning, this is not a lament, okay? Laments are important and laments are appropriate, but this is to help us understand the world we live in. You know, he says something like, you know, this is the world you live in. You might not like it, but you need to understand it. And that's the spirit of the book is to have a better understanding so that we can be better ministers. So please grab it. We'll have a discussion about it if you guys want to. I would love to. I don't want to be by myself, though. So let me know if you want to do this. I'm, I'm interested. Anyway, so we're in Genesis 2 this morning. We're kind of staying in Genesis 2 and kind of jumping out from it to look at God's generous design in a bunch of areas. This morning it's on marriage. And one thing that Genesis 2 answers is the question of what is marriage for? Okay, what is marriage for? You could Google that. You could be like, what is marriage for? What's interesting when you Google what is marriage for, it's mostly Christian sources, which is kind of interesting. Maybe that's my Google going, you know, you want Christian stuff. I don't know. But I don't know that our culture really sits back and thinks what is marriage for. Just something we do. You know, if you were to ask your, your neighbors, what is marriage for, what would they say? 
It's worth asking. Maybe you should ask them. Maybe that's your homework this week. Ask a few neighbors, especially those that aren't Christians, hey, what is marriage for? You get some interesting answers. Biblically, there's several answers to what marriage is for, and different Christian traditions have kind of emphasized different answers. One of them is marriage is for procreation, Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This particular emphasis of marriage being about procreation has been emphasized greatly by the Catholic Church, and we've seen that emphasis. Marriage is also biblically about protecting us from sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 7.9 says, If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. College-age guys know that verse really well. Better to marry than burn with passion. You hear that? It's like their favorite verse. But marriage between a man and a woman is the only legitimate context for sexual intimacy. And so marriage is a way to protect us from sexual sin. This was emphasized by Luther and his people. Um, Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. We see in Ephesians 5.23, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. So our marriages are a picture of Christ in the church. This is an emphasis greatly emphasized by the Reformed tradition. This text, though, gives us another purpose for marriage. And it's in verse 18, and the purpose for marriage that we're going to look at first here is companionship. Take a look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we looked at friendship last week, and we saw that friendship's a human need. Um, We saw that God has made us with a need, even before the fall, for human friendship, because he's made us in his image, and God has eternally existed as a friendship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. And so we've been made in his image to actually engage in those kinds of friendships as well. Marriage is not a human need, but friendship is, okay? I think that's important to, to, to spot from the beginning. God calls some believers to lifelong singleness. He calls other believers to long stretches of being unmarried. The New Testament actually was quite unique in its time for how it elevated the idea of singleness. You know, in that ancient culture, singleness was not, it was not a good thing. And you see Paul and you see others elevating singleness as an actual calling from God. Um, The founder of our faith was single. So marriage is not a human need. Friendship is a human need. And marriage is, though, a friendship. And we can see that in like the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 5, 16 says this. The wife says of her husband, his mouth is most sweet. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Or in Proverbs, the husband is called the companion of her youth. The Hebrew there word is allop. It means intimate friend. It means best friend. Your spouse is your allop, is your best friend, is your closest friend, or should be your closest friend. And this was actually a surprising view of marriage in that ancient time, because in the ancient times, marriage was about securing property, was about uh, family social standings, was about forming ties between families. And so you have the Bible here, even from the very beginning, in God's original design for marriage, making it about friendship. God created marriage to be an intimate friendship. Um, The biblical emphasis here of friendship is actually also surprising to our culture. You know, in our culture, people marry for sex, romance, maybe for material reasons. But we have, once again, the Bible surprising us and saying marriage is ultimately a friendship. And I think that's important for you guys that are dating. Those of you guys that are single and you're dating, you're looking for somebody. Keep in mind that you're looking for a friend. I think that's really important. Life is long. It's actually short, but it might feel long. And you're looking for somebody that you enjoy being with, somebody you like talking to, somebody that you wouldn't mind fighting with, working things out with, 
working with, striving with. You're looking for a friend. It's super important that you look for a friend in marriage. One other thing you should look for is a sense of humor. It's not in the text, but it's a great survival skill. It would be great if they had a sense of humor. But uh, it's really important, guys, to to think about as we start to get into some messages on marriage to look at friendship because next week we're going to get into biblical roles, roles of husband and wife. And it's really important that we first focus on friendship. Otherwise, those roles of husband and wife might feel just kind of transactional. Might feel like, well, your role's this and my role's that and we do our roles and things will be great. And it takes all the warmth out of it, right? We need to think of it first as a friendship. And so the roles that we're going to see next week are the covenantal dance of two friends. It's important, too, to think about marriage as friendship because as you protect your friendship, you protect your marriage. This is really important. A lot of people are struggling in marriage. One easy place to look to grab a hold of that is to think about your friendship. In every unhealthy marriage, there came a time when they started to treat each other in ways they would never treat a friend. And so it's important, married people, to think about, are you treating each other in any way that you wouldn't treat a friend? You know, that's simple, right? Sometimes we think we can treat our spouses in ways we would never treat a friend, and it's totally normal. It's not normal. It's not normal if it's a friendship. Your spouse should be your best friend. And I know as I say that, for some of you, you know, you might be in a rough patch of marriage, and that's painful to hear your spouse should be your best friend. But work towards that. It gives you a goal to strive for. You know, you should be thinking about your marriage. You should be thinking about how can we be better friends. And it's convenient because you guys live together. So this is something you should work towards. You know, think about how could you rearrange your life so that you could become better friends. I'll ask you a few questions like, is your spouse the first person you tell your stories to? You think about your day, something crazy happened. Who's the first person you call? Think about your text message history. You know, your original one, maybe some funny texts and, you know, some playful, you know, emojis and stuff like that. And and now it's like, we're out of milk. (laughs) You know, like, it's needed. But there should be a lot of the stuff that was before, stuff that actually builds friendship. Do you share things with each other that no one else shares? Marilyn Robinson's book, Lila, there's this great section where it says this, Lila had no particular notion what the word married meant, except that there was an endless pleasant joke between them that excluded everyone else, and that all the rest of them were welcome to admire. I love that as a line of like intimate friendship and marriage. They had an endless pleasant joke between them that excluded everyone else, and that all the rest were welcome to admire. Do you treat your spouse as your most trusted advisor? This is the person that you go to. This is the person you ask to pray for you. There's an old book about marriage. I don't know if it's good or not, but it's called Intimate Allies. And I just like the, the, the title. That's who you are, you know? Do you have regular times alone to focus on your friendship? Do you have a regular date, maybe a weekly date, to really look at each other and go like, oh yeah, you're human. And uh, I used to know you. And uh, what's your name again, you know? And to really focus on each other and really kind of dig into one another's souls. Do you, do you get weekends away together without the kids, if you have kids in the home? It's biblical, by the way. Song of Solomon, 7:11. I have a verse for this. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. That sounds like going away for the weekend. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines are budded, whether the grapes blossom have opened. 
the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So there's some sort of going out into the villages and lodging. Okay, weekends away. You might say, well, I don't have anybody to watch our kids. And I was thinking about this because I know, you know, people are like, I don't have anybody to watch my kids and things like that. There's a lot of young couples here. Wouldn't it be cool if you guys traded? You know, we used to do this with some friends of ours where, you know, they would go away for the weekend and we would take all their kids, which sounds crazy, but our kids loved it. And our kids were actually a lot easier to deal with when they had people to entertain them, you know, and it was amazing. And then your kids will enjoy that time and you'll enjoy when it's your turn, but like trade off date nights, trade off weekends away. This can be arranged. So marriage is a friendship. Marriage is also though, guys, a shared mission. And I get that from the second half of verse 18. Take a look at it. God says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So Adam's wife, Eve, was made to be his helper. And you think, okay, a helper for what? It's a pretty good question to ask, right? You guys have probably seen that verse a bunch of times. Have you ever thought like a helper for what? A helper for what? Well, our culture would probably say, my spouse is a helper to maximize my happiness and help me accomplish my life goals and achieve my full potential, right? Something like that. And when they stop doing that, they're not useful to me, right? But what, what was Eve to be a helper to do? What was Adam told to do? What was his mission? And we can actually look at the context and we can see what she must have been a helper for because here he is, he has a mission. What's his mission? Take a look at um, Genesis 2.15. He was called to keep the garden, right? The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. He's supposed to work and keep this garden area, right? Work and keep it, so you got that. But what's interesting is the mission was bigger than that. It wasn't like, God's not like that. God's not like, here's one acre, guard this thing with your life and just hold on to it. No, God's expansive. God wanted to spread the garden over the whole world. If you look at Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. So what was, what was the mission for Adam? It was to spread God's kingdom over the whole world. The garden was meant to expand. The garden was meant to expand out. God's kingdom would spread out over the whole world. And that they would fill the world with image bearers. You look at the first part of Genesis 1.28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the mission that Adam's given is to extend the kingdom of God over the world and to fill the world with little image bearers that all reflect God's glory out into the world. That's what God wanted. That's what she's to help with. And this includes both the kids you have that are born to you, the kids you adopt. Um, This multiplying can also include discipleship. You know, perhaps you don't have kids, your kids are out of the home, you don't have kids yet, whatever it is, you guys, some of you guys that aren't even married, discipleship is a way in which we multiply image bearers, right? That people would more and more reflect uh, clearly the glory of God. That's what discipleship does. We actually learn to live by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we reflect God in a new way. So that's what it looks like to spread image bearers out. So what we're really talking about here is a mission of extending the kingdom of God. Whenever someone comes to Christ, whether it's your kids or someone you're ministering to, that person's transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, and God's kingdom expands into the world. That's how it works. As more and more people live under the reign of God and reflect his glory, the kingdom grows. Your mission, mission of marriage, is to extend God's kingdom through your ordinary family. You say, well, that sounds pretty grandiose. It is. It's great. You know? Your family looks so simple, so insignificant. But I love what G.K. Chesterton said. He said this, The most extraordinary thing in the world is an ordinary man 
and an ordinary woman and their ordinary children. That's how God works. He works through your ordinary family. And even after the fall, after we've been exiled from Eden, we still have this mission of extending the garden, of extending the kingdom of God through the world. Take a look at Jeremiah 29. You kind of move forward in the story. God's people have been given the land. Then through disobedience, they lose the land. They get exiled into Babylon. And you might think, well, you know, here they are, families exiled into Babylon. There can't be much for them to do there, but wait, you know, and just kind of try to survive. But what does God tell them to do? Jeremiah 29.4, he says this to the exiles who are in Babylon, to the Jewish people. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the directions he gives them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There's lots of hints there of Genesis 1 and 2. You know, the planting gardens, the, the building, the, the increasing, the multiplying, right? It's like even in exile, even in a time when we're in this fallen world, God still has that mission for us. You know, we too live in exile, but we're here to bless the world through our ordinary families. Um, He says here, build houses, you know. It's a godly and good thing to find a house and establish some roots and be active in a neighborhood. You know, you can't buy a house, you rent one. Rent is not throwing your money away, right? Rent is you securing a piece of land as an outpost of the kingdom of God. So when you write the check, it seems like too much, maybe it seems like you're wasting your money. You're actually securing a piece of land for an outpost of the kingdom of God. Because Abraham was a sojourner, right? He didn't have anywhere to live. He was wandering. You know what? All of us who own houses, someone else in not too distant a time is going to live in it and have it. That's a weird thought, huh? What are they doing in my house? We're sojourners. We're passing through, right? Your rent or your mortgage stakes out a place for the kingdom of God to grow. It gives you access to neighbors. Some of you, some of you might live on a mountain and you know, defend it from neighbors. I don't know. But, but it gives you access to neighbors to love and to serve. You have a reason to talk to them. You know, you're not a weird person walking down the street that randomly said hi. You're their neighbor. You have an opportunity for ministry there. It's a place that you could offer hospitality. You know, you could do van life. You're going to have a hard time doing any kind of hospitality. But you have a place where you can do hospitality. You have a place where you can make disciples. Uh, most Christian couples, when they, when they first marry and they they get that first place to live. That's the dream they have for it. They're like, oh, we're going to use this for ministry. We're going to, you know, have people over. We're going to do all this. But what happens? We, we, it fades <laughs> fairly rapidly unless we remind each other. So this is your reminder. And then he says, multiply, do not decrease. Have kids. Be engaged in discipleship. As there's this thing we've been taught over the last couple decades that kids are this tremendous burden on the earth and we need to really watch it because we've overdone it. It's not the case. It's not the case. Our directive is don't decrease. (laughs) Don't fade out. You know, I could give statistical and demographic reasons why it would be an extremely strategic thing for the gospel for us to have as many children as we can. And it'd be actually a really good thing for society as well. But don't decrease. Um, And it says seek the welfare of the city. You know, as you make disciples, as you have this outpost of the kingdom in a particular neighborhood, you're a benefit to the city. Single men, 
Those of you who feel called to get married, getting a job and working hard and pursuing a wife is a holy calling. It's a good thing. You should do it. You should do it with gusto. You should be ambitious. You should try to get the best job you can. I know nobody wants to say that. People don't want to say that in the church. People don't want to say that in our culture. You know, men are a problem. They're toxic. They're all these things. Guys, we need you. We need you to work hard, be ambitious, establish families, be a blessing. You might be like Adam and be totally unaware that you have a wife right around the corner, you know, but you should be preparing. Proverbs 24, 27 says this, prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field and after that, build your house. You know, be ambitious, build. That's what you were made to do. You're made to have initiative. You're made to be a leader. Do it. Single women who feel called to be married. Think about what kind of careers you want to go into that would fit that. I mean, if you're going to want to keep your career and you're going to want to have a family, you should really think about the kinds of careers that are compatible with that. A lot of you guys have found careers like that, which is great, that are compatible, that you, know, you can work a couple of days or you can, you can make things work. I don't think it's sexist to say, let's be realistic. If you want to have a family, you should think about a career that would fit with that if you're going to do both. Single men and women, I know this sounds like totally just practical, but watch your debt. Watch your debt. Think long term. You know, you think, oh, I'm going to go to that private college and it's going to be awesome. You're also going to owe like $200,000, which is a strange thing to start life with. You could, for $46 per unit, go Eagles. Go Eagles. You could go to community college. For $400 a unit, you could go to a public university. Or for $1,300 a unit, you can go to a private school. Just think long term. Maybe you've got a Minecraft scholarship or something like that that you're going free. Like, that's great. Go for it. But a lot of us have to pay. So married people, how can you focus more on your shared mission? I think this would be a great time for us to just think through, like, have we forgotten our mission? How how could we tune up on our hospitality with our neighbors and with people here? How could we tune up our discipleship of our kids? I mean, if that's what we're about, we're about image bearers of God multiplying How could we think about that? How could you think about couples discipling other couples or practicing hospitality to singles? You know, you've been married five years. You give a newlywed come over to your house, hang out with you, you know? You've been married 10 years. You could have somebody that's been five years, you know? Think about that. Um, I'm going to send out an email, some discussion questions for the date night that you're totally going to start this week. And it's going to have some discussion questions for you guys based on this. Date night questions. You guys do that, right? When you go on date night, did you have discussion questions? Is that not normal? Okay. Okay, well, you could this time. I'm going to send you some. You're like, we got homework? Yes. And this is important, these two things. Friendship and shared mission are important because marriages suffer when we lose sight that we're friends and that we need to work on our friendship. And marriages suffer when they lose sight of a shared mission. Because if it's all about me, it's all about us, it's all about you, it's going to suffer. But if we're all about the kingdom, it's going to be a different thing. We forget our marriage is about something other than us or even both of us or our kids. Your marriage is meant to extend the kingdom of God and bless the world. And we all need your marriages to thrive. I don't know if you guys realize that. That as your marriages are stronger, our marriages are stronger. We're herd animals. You know, as a church, as there's more and more strong marriages for us to be around, we actually strengthen each other's marriages. Marriage is a shared mission. And in this text, we can also see that marriage is a shared mission between two people that have been made complementary to each other. Take a look again at verse 18. I know I'm getting a lot out of verse 18 here, but it says, a helper fit for him. 
This is really interesting. A helper fit for him. The, the Hebrew there is like, like opposites, which is weird. Like opposites. Seems contradictory, right? Or um, like opposite to him, or according to his opposite, or corresponding to him, which means that there's a fittedness, but there's also a lot of difference. Best example of this would be puzzle pieces, right? In general, puzzle pieces that fit together don't look the same, right? But they have ways to fit together, and that's how God's created us. God's created husbands and wives to be complementary to one another. And while this certainly rules out same-sex marriage, it goes deeper than that because God has made you complementary to your spouse in dozens of ways, not just male and female, but in dozens of other ways too, like introversion, extroversion, is a really common one, right? So in a marriage, one person's more extroverted, one person's more introverted. Uh, People-pleasing versus being assertive and disagreeable. How many of you guys tend to be people-pleasers? And then you guys are disagreeable, I already know, so you don't have to. You actually need both, don't you? You don't really want two people-pleasers in a marriage. That, that disagreeable, in a good way, assertive person that goes, no, you know what, this doesn't make sense. We're not going to just do this, you know, is an important person to have, right? Rational versus emotional. And you think, oh, yeah, lady's always so emotional. Not in our marriage, right? She's, like, solid all the time. I'm the, like, turbulent one, you know, emotional one. Noisy versus quiet, another thing with us. We go on a walk. We're like, that was a good talk. I talked the whole time. <laughs> it was great. But these differences, guys, these differences, he makes us us complimentary to each other. There's a thing called noisy introverts. Did you know about that? So you guys won't believe it, but I'm an introvert, very introverted. I would totally could for weeks be by myself. But I'm noisy. I need to be heard. I need people to know what I think, which is weird. So anyway, as you may have found, it's a preaching thing. So these differences that we have with each other, they're, first they're attractive. You're like, oh, this is so great, you know? And then you get married, and then they're frustrating, right? And then what the Lord eventually does in a good marriage been cultivated is it goes from attraction, frustration, to appreciation. You start to see how God has made you guys complimentary in ways that were quite frustrating initially. And then you start to see, like, God's wisdom in it. You're like, God really knew what he was doing. He's so wise. It seems like he knows everything, you know? And each supplies what the other one lacks as we advance the kingdom and make disciples, just like in the church, we have different gifts. In a good marriage, you're complimentary. There's a really great example of this in the New Testament. Are you guys familiar with Aquila and Priscilla? So in Acts, there's this really cool couple. I think they're the best. It's Aquila and Priscilla. We don't know if they had kids, but what we do know is it was a husband and wife team. They're the ones that when Apollos was preaching all eloquently, but he totally didn't get the gospel, they took him aside privately, and it says they both explained to him more accurately the way. Just super cool. Husband and wife team. They made lots of disciples. They were just regular couple, tent makers, but they knew that their marriage was about a shared mission. Church often met in their homes. And they're amazing people doing evangelism and discipleship in their homes. How does that sound? And if you're a Christian, you gotta think like, ooh, that sounds good. Like God will do that through you as you seek him. And we have some great examples of that in our church. If you think about families like the Rogers or the McDougals or the Sissons or the Medinas, I mean, I could go on, a bunch of you guys, you use your home, and you know that your marriage is a shared mission. So it isn't an insular thing. It's an open thing, and it's like we want to live this mission together. And what's so cool is more and more of you guys do this is that the front door of your house becomes another front door of our church. 
right? So our church has all these front doors, and it's all your homes. A marriage is a friendship and a partnership and mission. And there's a cool way that's illustrated in the text. Take a look at how God creates Eve. Look at verse 18. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called him, every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and out of every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him, fit for him. Kind of a cool text. It seems like the Lord is making all the animals in front of him. It doesn't seem like he's going to get them. But it says the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man. So he's already created everything. But it's almost like balloon animals, but they're real animals. You know, he's like making them and he's like, what would you call this? Elephant. He's like, that's great. I love that. And what would you call this? You know, and he's going through it. And I think what's going on is Adam doesn't even know he's lonely at this point right? It says that only the Lord knew. He said, it is not good. This is God saying that. And so he's gradually showing him like, you want an elephant as a life partner? No. Would you like a giraffe as your closest friend? No. And and over and over again until he sees that none of the animals can be that helper and that friend. I tried the animal companion thing for a while. When Tasha and I met, we were 15, and the first time she came over, she was in for a real surprise. And I don't remember if, she said, if I said to her, like, hey, so thing about my house is, but I had dozens of reptiles. So I actually had two bedrooms, and one of them was a reptile emporium, perhaps, or museum, or zoo. And then I had another space that was my rat colony, which supplied the food for the reptiles, the ones that weren't show quality, rats. And the ones that were show quality, I provided show quality rats to the greater San Diego County area through this lady, the rat lady, and I'd bring the show quality ones. And (laughs) it's a long story. But, and then a little bit later, I went on to breed ferrets, kind of unintentionally, but ferrets are illegal in California. And they're, when they're babies, they're like little piranha with fur. So you put your arm in there and they would all latch on. There'd be like 13 of them and you'd be bloody. And so I had to find a way to get rid of them. And this is the 90s, and so I just had to meet people in parking lots <laughs> with illegal animals. And so I was like, I was that guy, I was like, you want to buy a ferret? You know, kind of a thing. <laughs> and I never got busted for that by the fishing game, but I did get busted by the fishing game for collecting geckos without a license, because you do need a license to catch geckos. And I found out that and ended up in an El Centro court. And then there was a time I adopted this baby miniature horse that was orphaned and kept it in my bathroom for a while because we didn't have a pen. So anyway, I tried the animal thing. And uh, it's not good that man should be alone. So God created a helper for me. And all God's people said amen. So, but what's cool, you know what's really neat about this? And I'll get off, this is totally a tangent. This is just for fun. But um, what was cool about Tosh, and it's cool about women in general, is she comes over and she's like, I can work with this. <laughs> you know, which was like kind of cool. And women, you got to be careful about that because there's some things you shouldn't be trying to work with. But in general, that's a cool spirit, you know, to go like, yeah, and she was 15 too, so maybe that's part of it. But marriage is a friendship. It's a shared mission. And we see that illustrated by the way God made Eve. Take a look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, one of Adam's ribs, and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, 
he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is really cool. So there was a pastor in the fourth century, so 1600 years ago. His name was John Chrysostom. They called him Golden Mouth. And this is what he said about it. He said this, Let us remember that God did not take the woman from the man's feet to be trampled upon or enslaved, nor from his head that she should dominate him, but from his side to be his companion, from beneath his arm to receive his protection, from near his heart to have his love and affection. Wow. So wives created to be our friends and our partners in mission. And if you're married, guys, that's what your calling is, together. And so what should our response be to that? This is a generous gift. This is a generous design. This is an amazing thing that God's given. And look at how Adam responds. So he's been under anesthesia, right? He wakes up. The Lord brings Eve to him like a, like a father bringing his daughter down the aisle to her, her new husband. And this is how Adam responds when he first sees her. Verse 23. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So what's the response there? It's like amazed gratitude. Isn't that cool? He has amazed gratitude about his wife. And it's a little bit funny where he says this at last. It's like, it's probably been a day. This guy got really super needy, (laughs) you know. But what's his response here is she's a part of me. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The Hebrew there is, she's going to be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. Ish being man, Isha being woman. He's like, she's perfect for me. She's one with me. We are one. And what's so cool, guys, is that this is the first recorded human speech. It's like the first thing a human was recorded as ever saying. And it's a man taking great joy in his wife. Because God is good. That should be your first thought toward your spouse. And I know, you know, I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure there are tons of struggles that you all have. We all do. But our first thought towards our spouse should be this, should be amazed gratitude. God gave you this person. Gave you a human. It's pretty amazing. It's, it's amazing that another human being committed their life to you. Like, there must be a God, right? And this was knowing how nuts you are. You know, maybe they didn't know. But another human being to face the world with, like God is in this, guys. And the longer you're together and the longer you spend the time and seek the Lord for the unity to do it, you're going to see how God's made them like opposite to you. And as we continue to live out our calling, we're going to see him working through our ordinary flawed marriages to make disciples and expand the kingdom. He's making your ordinary, everyday faithfulness in your family yield eternal fruit. Guys, God is good. He's up to something good. And so I would just advise you guys this morning, like, don't let the shortcomings of your marriage, which may be many, keep you from seeing the goodness of God and bringing you two together. Some Christians can be so discontent in their marriages, and I think part of the reason is we have extremely high expectations for them. I just talked about how your marriage is like designed to expand the kingdom of God, okay? No pressure, right? But we have really high expectations for our marriage sometimes. But have you guys ever heard the saying, I think this, this is so important. Have you guys ever heard the saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good? Have you ever heard that before? Perfect is the enemy of the good. The idea is, is that for some of us, it's perfect or nothing, right? The perfect is the enemy of the good sometimes. We're like, this is actually great. Is it perfect? It is not perfect, but this is wonderful. 
Francis Schaeffer said this, sometimes the greatest deterrent to a very good marriage is the belief that we ought to have a perfect one, right? And um, we all have places where our marriage needs to change, and we're going to dig into that in this series, and I would just say, reach out. I mean, there's so many couples here that would just love to come alongside you. If you're struggling with something, like you say, well, you know, do we have professional counseling services? We don't. We do know some professional counselors. Some of them are in this room. But even more, we have couples that would walk with you. They would, they would talk these things out with you. If you're early in marriage and you're thinking like, man, we're already having trouble, you know, and these are supposed to be the greatest years. Uh, those of us who have been married a long time could tell you those aren't the greatest years. You have this sense that somehow it's like a curve. It's like this is the honeymoon period and your marriage is going to like slowly grind down. But that's not the curve of sanctification, is it? The curve of sanctification is upwards, more and more like Christ. And so don't be ashamed of, you know, you're two years in and this seems unbearable. That's pretty normal. We would love to help you guys. So certainly reach out. But guys, have your first thought be amazed gratitude. So many marriages, guys, would have a chance to flourish if they were just given that kind of oxygen once in a while. Amazed gratitude. You know, then you can tackle the issues together as a team and make a good thing better. But this rejoicing in one another is so important. It's a skill you have to practice. It is so easy for some of us to see shortcomings. It's a skill to see evidences of grace in other people. And this is something we need to develop. It takes grace. And, and the cool thing is, guys, is that the gospel is the solution to this. That as you, you'll find the ability to rejoice in one another more naturally, the more you see how the Lord rejoices in you. If you really had a sense for in the gospel how much the Lord rejoices in you, it would free you to rejoice in your flawed spouse. Earlier I said that Jesus uh, was single, which is not exactly true. Because God the Son became a man. He came here to seek and to save a bride, the church, us. Jesus, like Adam, was pierced for his bride. Not for our creation, but for our salvation. Jesus was pierced on the cross to pay for our sin and unite him to himself. You know, just like Adam goes, this is, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Like we become united to Christ to where he feels that way about us. If you're united to Christ, you share in his righteousness. And when Christ sees you, he sees you as flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Isn't that amazing? And so now, in spite of your sin, the Lord delights in you the way that Adam delighted in, in Eve. Isaiah 62, 5 says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you believe that? How about this one? Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And this is speaking of God, about you, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that your conception of what God thinks about you? Do you believe that God, because you're in Christ, rejoices over you with gladness? Seems kind of excessive. Rejoicing with gladness? He rejoices over you with gladness. And it says he, he exults over you with loud singing. You say, well, I can't imagine how that would be, you know, with the sin I deal with, the struggles I have. That's the whole point of the gospel. Is because you're in Christ, he does that. Do you believe that? Do you believe he rejoices over you like Adam rejoiced over Eve? And, and not some future version of you, you know? Not some future version of you like, yeah, when I get it together, he will. 
You know, some future version of you that has all things figured out. I mean, do you believe God rejoices over you like that now, where you're at? And if you do, you're going to be a lot more enabled to rejoice over your spouse where they're at right now. Not a future version of them, the person they are now. The more you see that the Lord in grace rejoices over you, the more you're going to be able to give that to your spouse and to be that friend they need and to enjoy that mission together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're good and that no matter what happens in this life, in marriage, in family, with our kids, no matter what happens, we know that we have that eternal relationship with you. Every marriage in the world is a flawed picture of that, and we have that. We have you rejoicing over us with loud singing. Not because of any goodness in us, but entirely because of the beauty of your son, Jesus Christ, whom we are in, who we are covered with, who we are connected to. We thank you, Lord, that this mission of extending the kingdom over the whole world is something that, though Adam failed to do it, Israel failed to do it, we failed to do it, you yourself will do it. Your son, Jesus, the better Adam, will extend the garden over the whole world and make all things new and invite us into it to enjoy him forever and enjoy one another forever. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.